Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and we ask that you speak to us in profound ways, Lord, that you show us things about ourselves, show us things about yourself, Lord, and that each and every one of us would uh, walk out of here um, knowing that we heard from the living God, the fact that you want to speak to us and the fact that you do speak to us. Um, never ceases to uh, amaze me, Lord. And uh, we know you speak because you love us and you want to give your children direction and what you desire uh, for us and, and the hope you have for us, Lord. Um, God, so I pray that you would bless our time in this passage tonight, that you would uh, just open our eyes and our ears to hear what your spirit has to say to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Uh, so, Going through 2 Samuel, if you remember 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul, King Saul died. So uh, then we get into 2 Samuel, um, the Amalekite comes to David, tells him that he killed King Saul. I believe he was lying. David responds, he, he actually has the Amalekite killed and he's mourning. Uh, but that just leads to an opportunity. Uh, God establishes David as the king um, of Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Well, after that happened, happens, we see Abner, who is the commander of the army of Israel. Uh, he doesn't want David to be king. At least initially, he wants to still have his power because he used to be the right-hand guy for King Saul. So he knows if David takes over, he'll probably lose that position. So he has Ishbosheth, Saul's last son, established as king. Well, Ishbosheth and Abner end up having a falling out, falling out. Then Abner goes to David to make a covenant with David. And everything seems like it's going well, even though it seems that Abner is using David for his own selfish gain. And then Joab gets involved, right? And if you remember, Abner had killed Joab's brother. So Joab, he seeks revenge and he ends up killing Joab right out of Sorry, Joab ends up killing Abner right out of the city gate. And we discussed two weeks ago, last week with Seder, the week before, how honor is greater than power. And we compared how uh, how David went about um, his role. Uh, he wasn't seeking the role as king. Uh, that was a promise that God made to him that, that David would become king, but he wasn't trying to position himself. He didn't have selfish ambition. He was completely waiting on the Lord to put him in that place. And then we look at... Abner, we look at Joab, we look at Ishbosheth, we look at all these different men, uh, the men that ended up killing Ishbosheth, and they're all seeking, seeking power through selfish ambition. They wanted a position, they wanted prominence, they wanted all these different things. And each and every one of them eventually will have horrific things happen to them. Many of them are already dead. Joab will die later on in first Kings. But this chapter, second Samuel chapter five, it's kind of one of those moments we've all been waiting for, right? God promised David that he would be king eventually. And then just when it seems like, Oh, David's going to be king. He's just king of Judah, but that wasn't God's promise to David. God promised that David would be king over all of Israel. And in this chapter, second Samuel chapter five, God is going to finally fulfill that promise. And he's going to establish his kingdom through David. The title of this teaching is a kingdom established. Can somebody flip that TV on? A kingdom established. I'm just, I just gotta make sure I didn't spell any words wrong. 
Whitney already told me that this is something I sent her didn't make sense. Just want to know what you're seeing is what I'm seeing. A kingdom established. So we'll see that uh, as God establishes really God's kingdom through David, it's really foreshadowing the kingdom that God the Father will establish through God the Son. Let's take a look at this. It's 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. So finally, all the Israelites recognized David as their king. As I mentioned, David before this was only the king of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. But now all Israel comes to David and they say, David, we recognize you as our king. We want you as our king. First point. All will recognize God's king. All will recognize God's king. Now, I'm not speaking of David. I'm speaking of the son of David. If you would with me in Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, we see in verse 9, there's a promise that's made. It says, therefore, God also has exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's going to come a day when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Sadly, though, it's going to be too late for certain people. They'll recognize in eternity, wherever they are, heaven or hell, they'll recognize that King Jesus is actually Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that he is the creator. They'll recognize his kingship. But because they didn't choose to make him their king on this earth, they're going to suffer for eternity apart from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because here's the reality. God's king, King Jesus, the Lord doesn't force us to follow him. The Lord doesn't force us to submit to the Lord of lords. That's not how he does it. That's not the game he plays. He doesn't even try to persuade us. Hey, you need to follow me. No, he woos us and he draws us. He draws us in with his loving kindness. He wants us to have a willing heart to follow him that we would want to submit to him. Not that we feel like we have to submit to him. He wants willing hearts to follow him. And we see that same picture in King David. He's not going around on a campaign trying to persuade people to follow him. He's not forcing people to follow him. He's asking people, do you want to follow me? You don't have to follow me. You don't have to recognize me as your king. No, we see the people, they come to David with willing hearts and they desire to submit to David. They want to make him their king. And they say to him in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, they say, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. In other, in other words, they're recognizing him as a Jew. Okay, we're, we're of the same Abraham's our father type of thing. But this is kind of interesting. Why? Because if you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 27, 
David went and he lived with the Philistines. He went and lived with the enemies of God's people for a year and four months. And then he almost fought against the Israelites. But the people, they still recognized David as one of their own, even though he fell away for a time period. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, says, also in time past when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. They say, hey, even when Saul was the king, you were the really, you were the leader. You, you were the one that was really leading the people. And we see that back in 1 Samuel chapter 18. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says just that. Um, the chapter after David killed Goliath, we see that David is the one leading the army at this time. It's 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 13. It says, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. That Hebrew phrase uh, really means that David was leading the people in war and bringing them back safely in victory, even though Saul was appointed king, people recognized that, that David's the rightful king. He's the real leader. See, David, he was a man even before he came became king. He was a man that led by example. He was a man that truly loved his sheep. And we see this example is perfected in the person of Jesus Christ. There was no better example than Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd, but he also calls us through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 to lead this same way. Let me show you. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> Peter writes in verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Be an example to the flock, to the people that God has entrusted to you. Why? Because you're held accountable, not just to them, but to the chief shepherd. There's going to come a day where Jesus asks you, how have you been leading my people? We see David, though he was a flawed man, he was an imperfect man. He was a shepherd and he's referred to as a shepherd, even by God. Now he wasn't the good shepherd, but he was a pretty good shepherd to the people. Look at second Samuel chapter five. I'll reread it. They said, and the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. The people, they recognized that it was ultimately God who wanted David to, to be the ruler, to be the king, to be the shepherd. This was an act of God. This was a promise fulfilled by God. And as I mentioned, David was far from a perfect shepherd, but the bottom line was, was that God appointed him and God, he appoints all authority, even corrupt authority. Every authority figure is imperfect on some level, some more than others. David was imperfect, but the people, they didn't say, Hey, I'm going to make you my king because you're perfect. No, 
We're going to make you my king because God said. That was very wise. God said that you are going to be the ruler of Israel. So we're going to recognize God's authority that he gave you. And in doing that, they were directly submitting to God. And that's what Romans chapter 13 verse 1 teaches us. That all authority is placed by God. When we submit to the authority that's placed over our lives, we're directly submitting to God. And when we look at these character qualities that are mentioned here, these qualifications, if you will, there are some qualifications that are listed in general for spiritual leadership. Look what it says here. Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Spiritual leader, it's got to be one of God's people. It's got to be one of God's people. What else? We see that he led Israel. He led them going out and coming back. In other words, he was a, a good example. He led them by ex, by example. And then probably the most powerful one is what is that the people recognized that uh, God had called David to leadership. See, David, he had an evident calling from God. These are three crucial qualifications when you look at spiritual leadership in the church it's got to be a person of god right it's got to be one of god's people they got to lead by example and they have to have an evident calling from god david had all of these things despite his imperfections it says in second samuel chapter 5 verse 3 therefore all the elders of israel came to the king at hebron and king david made a covenant with them at hebron before the lord and they anointed david king over israel finally after we don't know for sure could have been as little as 15 years could have been as many as 22 years after god made that initial promise to david that he would become the king of israel and samuel anointed him as king of israel finally After years of waiting, at least over a decade, David becomes the king of Israel. This promise is finally fulfilled. Now, in 1 Chronicles, if you're taking notes, if you want to write this down, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, uh, verses 23 to 40, we see some more details about this celebration. There was a lot more going on than what 2 Samuel chapter 5 uh, mentions to us. I'll just list a couple of things. There was an army of 340,000 at this anointing of King David. Okay, That's a lot of people, over a quarter million, almost a half a million, uh, just the army alone. So there were quite a few people. Uh, when they came there, they came with a loyal heart. They were ready to serve David. They were sold out for David because they knew David was sold out for God. It says the people that were uh, of one mind, there was unity in the kingdom of God. That's very different than how it was back in Saul's reign. And then they had a, a three-day um, celebration, a three-day feast. I almost said fast. They had a three-day feast. They really celebrated this anointing of David. So this was a big deal. All we have here in second Samuel chapter five is that, uh, the people came to Hebron and he was anointed, but there's a lot going on as first Chronicles kind of fills us in with some of the details. Second Samuel chapter five, verse four, David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years in Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. You see how old David was when he became the king of Israel? He was 30 years old. You remember how old Jesus was when he started his ministry? He was 30 years old. 
You remember how old I was when I came on at CCRS? I was 30 years old. Hey, I'm not David and I'm not Jesus, but I'm in good company, right? That age, it means something. I know there's some that are like, man, a young pastor, I don't know how I feel about this. God doesn't seem to mind. So I'm going with that. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So at this time, Jerusalem wasn't occupied by the Israelites. It was a small Canaanite city. It was supposed to be occupied by the Israelites. But if you remember the book of Joshua, or if you've studied that, there were still Canaanites left in the land. The Jebusites, was a, that was a, a group of Canaanites, and they were currently occupying Jerusalem. Now this teaches us a biblical lesson as well. We see these different groups, the Amalekites, Moabites, we see these different groups uh, in the Old Testament. Um, they represent types of the flesh, that carnal nature in us that desires sin. And that's why God commanded Joshua, get rid of all these people because we don't want a, a remnant left of the flesh. If you leave these people here, the people that I told you to destroy, you're just going to have to fight him later. And that's exactly what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Because through Joshua and the people, the Jebusites weren't taken out, David just has to fight him later. And that's the truth for us. When God tells us to crucify the flesh, to kill the flesh, to kill our carnal nature and carnal desires, he wants us to do it completely. Why? Because if we don't do it completely, we're just going to have to fight it again later. You know what happens when we put off that fight and we have to fight it again later? Flesh usually gets stronger and stronger and stronger until we finally decide, no, I want to crucify the flesh. I want to put it to death. I don't want to live like this any longer. So David, he's going to get in a battle with the Jebusites, but the Jebusites are being cocky. They're being arrogant. Look what they say here. In verse 6, they say, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. So due to its location, and still like this today, uh, Jerusalem was a natural stronghold. Okay, It was surrounded um, by the southeast and west with valleys. Okay, And then there's a mountain on the north side. So this uh, place, Jerusalem, it's, it's naturally protected. It's naturally protected. Not to mention the fortresses and the citadels that uh, later on were built um, in Jerusalem by King David. So this is why these people, the Jebusites are being cocky and arrogant. They're saying, there's no way David's getting in here. He said, hey, even if we got to uh, just use our blind and our lame, our blind and our lame will take care of us enough to take David out. There's no way David is getting into Jerusalem. What are they doing? They're putting their confidence in their own strength. They're putting their confidence in their flesh. And what's going to happen to them? Well, I'll ruin the story prematurely for you. They're going to fall. They're going to fail. They're going to get whooped up on by David and his men. We got to be super careful when we put too much confidence in our flesh, too much confidence in our own strengths or our gifts or our abilities or our intellect, you name it. Why? Because the Bible tells us 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, He who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. When you think you're the one standing on your own two feet and the Lord's got nothing to do with it, you better be careful. When you think you're that strong, you're probably a moment away from falling. Because when we put our strength or our confidence in ourselves, what is it? It's pride. And the Lord says, no, don't put your confidence in your strength. Put your confidence in mine. Why would I put my confidence in my strength when I can put my confidence in the Lord's? See, David, it says in verse 7 that he takes the stronghold. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold. Why? Because David wasn't putting his confidence in his own strength. He was putting his confidence in the Lord's strength. And the Lord was able to give him this victory. Now we see Jerusalem, it's also referred to as Zion, okay? Zion, that's another name for the city of Jerusalem, uh, and it literally means fortress, okay? It's a natural fortress that was set up by God. And you'll see this word Zion used throughout the Bible to mean several things. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, sometimes it's not the actual city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's the heavenly Jerusalem that will come down and the new heaven and the new earth. Sometimes it refers refers to God's kingdom. Sometimes it refers to God's people. Okay, so Zion's not always used just to describe the actual city of Jerusalem. There are spiritual meanings that are attached to it. This is also referred to as the city of David. Okay, there's two places in the Bible that are referred to as the city of David. We have Jerusalem. We also have Bethlehem. Okay, are both referred to as the city of David. Why? Because David was born in Bethlehem and Jerusalem was where uh, he ruled and reigned for a big portion, uh, 33 years of his life. But something else is really cool here. We see that one day Jesus is going to establish his kingdom and rule from Jerusalem. We see that in Zechariah chapter 14. When the Lord comes back, okay, at the end of the tribulation, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and he's going to establish his kingdom during the millennial reign there. And it says that those people that don't come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they're going to receive some form of judgment. Um, we won't get into that now, but it is very interesting, the foreshadowing that's happening here, just as David established his kingdom in Jerusalem, so too will Jesus Christ establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8, Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So apparently there was a water shaft that uh, gave the Jebusites, gave Jerusalem access to water even when there were people coming up against them, okay? Some people draw different pictures. We don't know how it worked uh, for sure, but they made sure because they were in a high spot that they could still get access to water if they had to stay in their fortified city. So what David's saying is, hey... <laughs> My men, if we're going to take Jerusalem over and establish the kingdom there, it's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. It's going to take fighting through obstacles. Second point, fight to enter into the kingdom of God. Fight to enter into the kingdom of God. 
We see this as a charge for us as believers. And this is the picture. You even heard Monica um, speaking during that, uh, just before that song, that, that we are uh, God's army. Yes, he has angels too, but he calls us soldiers. And that's the way we're supposed to walk through this Christian life, recognizing we're in a battle, recognizing that there's a fight to be fought all the time. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, Matthew 11, verse 12, it says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Okay. Uh, there are two translations to this and they might be actually combined. Um, one is the reality that obviously the enemy is violently attacking the kingdom of God and attacking God's people. But he says the violent take the kingdom of God by force. There's a reality as believers, not that we're supposed to be violently hurting people, but there should be an aggressiveness in our pursuit of the kingdom of God. We got to be aggressive. The kingdom of God is nothing, uh, isn't something that we should be complacent about or apathetic about. In fact, Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter seven. I'll read it for you in Matthew chapter seven. Verses 13 to 14, he says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who got, go in by it. Okay, Many people are taking the broad way. And then he says in verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are few who find the kingdom of God. That's kind of a scary verse. Many people think that they found the kingdom of God. Jesus says there's only few. And he says to enter in, it's difficult. There are obstacles. It's not easy. We got to fight for it. Now, I'm not talking about fighting for our salvation. Uh, the, the, we, we know that we're saved um, by grace and through faith. It's not about that. But in our Christian lifestyles, there's got to be a fight. There's got to be effort. There's got to be energy. See, David's men, they had to strive to take over Jerusalem. They had to strive to establish that kingdom. That You think that would have happened, like all this would have happened, and Jerusalem would have been established if the guys just kicked back. God's got it. We don't got to do nothing. God's got it. There's a reality, yeah, God's got it, but you gotta do something too. There's gotta be an effort and energy on your part. Yes, God has His responsibility, but we have ours. So these men, David makes them a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 5. He tells them, I'll reread verse eight. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. So we see there was a, a, a promise attached to this, a blessing that whoever got up the water gate, that they would be chief and captain. We actually see, if you want to write this down, in First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 6, First Chronicles 11, 6, that it was Joab was the first one. Okay, He was the first one to fight. And what do we know later on? Joab, he's the commander of the army of Israel. He's like David's right-hand man. Now, Job was far from a perfect man. We just saw him commit murder, okay, in the last chapter. Sorry, chapter 3. He had his flaws. He had his faults. Nevertheless, he got to rule and reign with David as the commander of his army. You know what the Bible tells us? 
that the bride of Christ, that believers are going to rule and reign with Jesus one day, that will truly rule and reign with Christ. Despite our flaws, despite our imperfections, those that enter the narrow gate, those that truly accept the Lord and are truly following the Lord, truly walking with the Lord, we will rule. We'll be co-heirs with Christ. That's an amazing promise that the Lord gives us. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10, So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. David became great. Why? Because he served a great God. It wasn't that David brought so much to the table. Remember when we were first introduced to say, David, he was this little ruddy guy, you know? He just had a heart after God. That's really all he had going for him. He was pretty good looking, okay, decently good looking. But it was his heart after the Lord. And because he had a heart after a great God, that great God made him great. God does this all the time. He makes ordinary people extraordinary. He does it all the time. He makes the wise or the simple wise. The simple-minded people, he makes them wise. He chooses the foolish. He chooses the weak. He choose, chooses the, the base things of this world. And that's who he chooses to make great. Why? So that no flesh can glory in his presence. You remember John and Peter, if you've been with us on Sundays, in Acts chapter 4, they preach this powerful sermon, mainly Peter, John's with them. And what does the Sanhedrin say? These guys are uneducated and unlearned men. But we know they've been with Jesus. Those men, though they were fishermen, uneducated, untrained, because they were with a great God, Jesus Christ, that great God made them great. And they literally turned the world right side up through their ministry. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 11. When Haram, <laughs> Haram, Hiram, I just want to say Hiram because Hiram's in here right now. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. See, David, he's not only gaining favor with God and gaining favor with his people, he's also gaining favor with other kings. This guy, this king of Tyre, he wants to help David out. Why? Because he sees God blessing David, and he wants to be on his good side. This was a wise move from the king of Tyre. It says in verse 12, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David knew that the Lord had established him as king. He was confident in his calling. He was confident in what God has called him to. Do you know what God has called you to? If you know, are you confident in that calling? And this isn't about be, us being confident again and our abilities to answer this calling. This is just confidence in, in the fact that God called me to this. That he called, I know I'm going to make mistakes. I know I'm going to slip up. I know I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm confident that God's called me to this. It's so crucial that we're confident in what God has called us to. That's what David says he knows. I know God has established me as the king over Israel. But he also knew something else. He also knew that it was ultimately God's kingdom, not David's. Yes, it's David's kingdom, but David is just a steward over the kingdom. It's not about David's kingdom. It's about the Lord's kingdom. This is the third point. It's about his kingdom, not ours. It's about his kingdom, not ours. <sighs> 
David wasn't doing all these things to establish his kingdom. Now he's going to do some things. He's going to make some mistakes here in a moment. But he was seeking the Lord's kingdom. It was about God's people. It was about God. It wasn't about him and the position that he had. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Matthew 6, verse 33, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And the context is worry. Quit worrying about your kingdom and focus on God's. Quit worrying about what you're trying to establish, your plan, your agenda. Seek the kingdom of God and we'll take care of all that other stuff. But sometimes we fall into this place, this pattern, where we're so focused on on our lives and what we're going to do. This is my plan. This is my agenda. This is the kingdom that I'm establishing. The Lord said, it doesn't work that way. How about you focus on my kingdom? I'll establish your life if you focus on my kingdom. But the more you focus on your kingdom, the more you're robbing my kingdom. And why would I help establish something that's not of me, that you haven't put me first, that you haven't made my kingdom a priority? See, David was purposing to establish the Lord's kingdom. And we see the evidence of this in the way that he lived his life. Same holds true for us. Your life will reveal what kingdom you're focused on. Your life's going, where, where are you putting your time? Where are you putting your effort? Where are you putting your energy? Is it all about me all the time? Or am I focused on the Lord? Am I focused on God's people? Cause that's what we, focus on me, focus on my people. I'll take care of you. But we fall into this worry thing, just like in Matthew chapter 6, where we feel like we've got to take care of ourselves. That's, that's so far from the truth. It couldn't be further from the truth. David wasn't worried about his kingdom. He focused on God's, and God established his. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elushua, Nepheg, Jephia, Elishama, Elidia, and Eliphelet. Okay, interesting names. Um, but there's something important here. We see that God, yes, he was establishing David's kingdom and really establishing God's kingdom through the person of David. But David was establishing his own kingdom in a way that he shouldn't. What do I mean? We talked about this previously. The king wasn't supposed to have multiple wives. That was something that God spoke against in Deuteronomy chapter 17. From the beginning, he said, yeah, I know one day you guys are going to ask for a king, even though I'm your king, but I'm going to give you the king. But there are rules for this king. There's a standard set for this king. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, speaking of the king, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Don't multiply wives. Don't get it caught materialism, stuck in your possessions. See, David... Though he was a, a great shepherd, a great king, sometimes he started making God's blessings about himself. Okay, God's given me all this stuff. I have the opportunity to marry another concubine or another wife or have all these kids. Why not take it? Must be a blessing from the Lord. But David was misusing some of the blessings. 
there were these opportunities in front of him that he shouldn't have taken. He shouldn't have married multiple wives. We see all the havoc that causes. See, sometimes he, God will, will bless us. In the beginning, yeah, we're seeking first the kingdom of God and we're seeing all these other things added unto us and the Lord is just doing mighty works in our life and we start mishandling the blessings. We start taking the things that God blessed us with and we start misusing them. See, God's blessing to David were supposed to be used for the benefit of the people. But what David did is he took the people for his own benefit as his blessing, marrying these wives and concubines. And you know what it cost Israel? So much. This act, these acts, this is more than one, caused so much destruction to the nation of Israel. See, there's a man that we see in this text by the name of Solomon, right? You guys know Solomon? The wisest man that ever walked the earth. Guess what Solomon did? He followed in his father's footsteps. Some ways were good, a lot of ways weren't. Solomon was a man that was only supposed to have one wife. Well, he had many wives and many concubines. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 11 that Solomon started marrying women from other nations, which he wasn't supposed to do. He basically brought idolatry into the nation of Israel. Not basically, he essentially, he definitely did. And it says his wives turned his heart away from God. His wives turned his heart away from God. It said that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You marry a bunch of wives, it's going to turn your heart away. See, David's sin, it didn't just impact him. It affected his whole family. Solomon falls in the same footsteps. And this literally leads uh, Solomon to walk away from the Lord for a period of time. You have a king that's not walking with the Lord. We got a few bits of scripture that help us understand what the kingdom was like then. But I'm sure we can't even imagine how devastating that was to the kingdom of Israel. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 17 now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed, had anointed David king over Israel, and the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it, and went down to the stronghold. Okay? So the Philistines, they hear David's anointed king, they're probably like, what? Like, we were, we took this guy in, we gave him land, we gave him Ziklag, like, what's going on? This guy was like our buddy, all of a sudden, he turned against us. Many of them probably weren't very surprised. Some of them, we see, they thought this was going to happen. But more than anything, they were probably threatened. Okay, now the kingdom of Israel is uh, united under one king. And we know this king, he's killed tens of thousands of Philistines. They're a little threatened. So they're going to come against David in war. But David, it says, he went down to the stronghold. Now this stronghold, um, it could have been Jerusalem. We don't know for sure. The text doesn't say. Uh, but even more importantly than that, we can't look at this as uh, David's enemies found out that he was king and David ran away in fear. No, that's not what ha what's happening. As we'll see in the text, David is getting to a safe place to seek the Lord, to ask God what he wants him to do. That's exactly what we'll see here. Picking it back up in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 18. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephim. So David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David, he doesn't just go up and attack the Philistines right away. 
God's enemies, God's people's enemies, coming after him. He doesn't just, hey, David's a mighty warrior. He's killed many, many people. I'm just going to attack him. No, he doesn't do that. He asked the Lord why. He asked the Lord because he knows that every battle isn't meant to be fought. Not every battle is meant to be fought. You know the saying, you got to pick and choose your battles, right? It's even wiser is to say what? Let the Lord pick and choose your battles because every battle that we face in this life, it might not, it it may not, uh, the Lord may not want us to fight it. I'll put it that way. And I mentioned, yes, we're soldiers, we're warriors, and this whole life is a battle. But every little argument with a significant other or with a friend, every little thing that the Lord puts into your life, we got to seek the Lord as to whether or not we're supposed to fight for that thing or if we're supposed to let it go. And David knew this because every time the Lord gave a command, he didn't always command people to fight. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 2. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, He tells the Israelites, he says, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So God says, I'm not giving you the land of the Moabites, because I promised that to Lot way back when. The point is, not every battle is meant to be fought, and we got to seek the Lord as to which battle we're to fight for and which battle we're, we're not supposed to fight in. Sometimes we can look at things in our life and think that God wants us to fight for that thing, and we just react like David could have, but he didn't. Just react and say, oh, I want this thing, I'm going to fight for this thing. But we'd be much wiser to say, God, do you want me to fight for this? Do you even want me to have this thing? Do you even want me to have this? Do you want me to do this at all? Or do you want me to step back? Is this fight yours and not mine? Do you want me to just not fight for it right now, but you want me to fight for it later? The only way we get the answers to those questions is by seeking the Lord, asking him. That's exactly what David does. And God, he answers David. Second Samuel chapter 5. Back to verse 19. And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. God, he promised David victory. And God, he promises us victory. Point number four, God promises victory. God promises victory. He promises us overall victory in this life. Doesn't mean that every battle we're going to win. Okay, I'm sure we've all lost battles before, right? Or is there going to be a lost battle in your life, Right? Not every battle will we be victorious in, but the overall war, the Lord says, I promise you're going to be victorious. He says in Philippians chapter one, verse six, he says, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it into the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God promises that you're going to be perfect one day. That that battle that's going on between the flesh and the spirit in your life, you know the battle that sometimes you feel like you're just getting whooped? You feel like you're not changing? You feel like you're not growing? You keep falling back into the same things? Lord says, I promise you victory there. You might not feel like you're, 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 you're in, you're, uh, uh, you're walking in victory now, but one day you're going to walk in victory. And there are going to be battles that are won, but ultimately the war over your soul will be won. How does this victory happen? 
It says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, in 1 John 5, 4, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If we want to experience the victorious life, then we got to walk by faith and trust God's promise for victory. But sometimes we don't do those things. I feel like I'm getting whooped and I'm going through the spiritual warfare and I'm battling with the sin and I can't overcome it. And it deters me from walking by faith, but that can't be how it should be. He says, continue to walk by faith because faith is the victory. And with that faith and walking by faith, it's trusting in God's promise that he is going to complete that work in you, that he is going to declare victory once and for all, as he did on the cross. But we know eventually he's going to come back, rule and reign, and we'll experience that victory to the fullest degree. I love what he says here again. He says, I will doubtless deliver the Philistines in your hands. Like, no doubt. <laughs> like, you don't have to worry about this. This isn't even going to be a fight. David, I want you to move forward in confidence. I want you to move forward in faith. I want you to trust the promise that I gave you that I no doubt, doubtless, I will give you victory in this battle. And that's how the Lord wants us to move forward in any battle that he calls us to. Without doubt, no doubt, doubtless with confidence, with faith, trusting his promise that if he said we're going to be victorious over this specific area, then he means it. Now we have to remember something. The last battle, okay, the last battle that we see between the Israelites and the Philistines was where? It was in 1 Samuel chapter 31. What happened? The Israelites got whooped. They got whooped. King Saul died and all of his sons. You remember that? So anyone with a practical mindset would think this. Last time we fought these dudes, we got whooped. (laughs) We got beat. Why would I get in another battle with the guys that the last time we fought them, they killed us. They destroyed us. But this wasn't David's mentality because he put his confidence in God. And again, he knew if God promises victory, he's going to deliver on his victory. But sometimes we can fall into this. We can look at past defeats in certain areas of our life and assume that we're going to be defeated again. We might as well not even try. Um, I ruined this relationship, so I shouldn't ever have relationships. And I've proven to, to, to get defeated time and time again in this area. I shouldn't pursue it again. Every time I try to repent of this sin, I keep getting defeated. I keep getting my butt whooped. Does that mean I should stop fighting? See, just because we've had past defeats in certain areas, the Lord, he still promises us future victories and our past defeats don't prevent our future victories. They don't. Just because we lost in the past doesn't mean we're going to lose again. David knows that. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter three, Philippians chapter three, verses 12 to 14. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, 
Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I pressed toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, hey, yeah, I've, I've had past failures, I've had past successes, but I'm forgetting all of that stuff, and I'm pressing forward to, towards what? Towards victory, towards the call of Jesus Christ on my life. This was David's mentality. He knew, regardless of the fact that the Philistines beat the Israelites last time, they weren't going to this time because God made a promise. Second Samuel chapter five, almost done. Verse 20. So David went to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of this place Baal Perazim. So we see David, he didn't just ask the Lord what to do and then not do it. He asked the Lord what to do, and it says that he went. Fifth and final point, God's kingdom is established through willing servants. God's kingdom is established through willing servants. Don't get me wrong here. It's not that God needs people to establish his kingdom. His kingdom is eternal. But when we look at the Bible, we see that God chooses people to establish his kingdom and increase his kingdom. God's kingdom is full of people. It's full of willing servants. And David was one of those willing servants helping God establish the kingdom of Israel on this earth. And that's the type of people that the Lord is looking for. You look at the disciples, what did they have going for them? Nothing. I mentioned they're uneducated, untrained. You got a tax collector and some fishermen, a zealot. Like you don't have a bunch of really intellectual guys, but you know what they all had going for them? They were willing. They were willing to follow Jesus. They were willing to drop their nets. They were willing to forsake all and say, I want you more than anything. That's what God had to work with. And when God has willingness to work with, he can do amazing things. We see a man by the name of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six. He has this encounter with the Lord. He thinks that he's going to die. That's why he says, I'm undone. I've seen God face to face. But he says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but not uh, under, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I'm willing. You're giving me a tough calling. You're giving me a, a, a tough obstacle. Talk to these people that want nothing to do with you. But I'm going to do it because you asked me to do it. That's what Isaiah had going for him. He was willing. God made him a, a, a profoundly powerful prophet because of that willingness. Imagine if he didn't respond like that. Lord, I'm terrified of what you're calling me to. I'm not going to do it. God would have just used somebody else. See, David, again, he was this type of willing servant. And the Lord calls us to be these willing servants. If we want to see God do amazing things in and around us, it takes that willingness, that willingness to follow him, that willingness to listen to him, that willingness to follow through on the things that he gives to us. It's exactly what David did. And it led to victory. It says David defeated them. See that willingness and that obedience, it led to victory. And that's true in our life too. When we're willing to follow what God's calling us to do, and we actually follow it, 
It leads to victory in this life. It's sad to say, but so many of the believers that I have conversations with and dialogue with, when they're experiencing seasons of just utter defeat, not every time, but most of the time, it's rooted in some disobedience in their life. There's something that God told them to do. If we look back far enough, they hadn't been doing it. Why? Because God wants us to walk in victory, but there's got to be that willingness. There's got to be that obedience because disobedience leads to defeat. Now, there are realities like Job, right? Where people are doing the right thing. They're following God. They're just all these different things and they're just going through and they feel like they're defeated. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those that know, Hey, I'm getting defeated because of my disobedience. If I just turn it around and do what God's been asking me to do for so long, I'd be experiencing victory. I wouldn't have these issues with my family. I wouldn't have these issues at work. I wouldn't have these internal issues going on in my heart. This battle, this fight. I just walked in the victory that God gave for me. But it takes obedience. That's exactly what David did. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 21. And they left their images there and David and his men carried them away. So, uh, the Philistines, they brought their images. They brought their idols, their gods. Okay. These figures that represented their gods. And they thought, Hey, if we bring our gods into this equation, then we'll have victory, right? Well, they were wrong because these idols don't match up against Yahweh. And then David and his men, after they defeat him, they take the idols. We don't know what they did with them. Hopefully they destroyed them. Hopefully none of them started worshiping the idols. You never know. Second Samuel chapter five, verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them and come upon them in the front of the mulberry trees. So we see the Philistines, they come back for more, even though they got defeated, their gods got taken. They come back for more. Why? Because the enemy's relentless. The enemy's relentless and he's going to continue to fight us all the days of our life. Okay. If you're not going through spiritual warfare now, you will. Okay. It's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. The enemy doesn't give up fighting us, but the Lord, again, he promises us victory in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He says the gates of hell, they can't prevail against the church. Okay. You might feel like you're getting Beat up a little bit, whooped on, but ultimately the gates of hell, the kingdom of hell will not prevail. So the Philistines come up to fight David again. What does David do? He says he inquired of the Lord or he asked God, what should I do? He doesn't just assume that God's going to give him the same answer as he did last time. It's a different situation. Maybe God wants to give me a different answer and God does. I want you to do something different. Don't just go up and fight them. I want you to circle around them. We're going to be strategic this time. See, God doesn't always give us the same direction for the same situations. Why? Because he doesn't want us to fall into religion. He doesn't want us to fall into, uh, you know, ABC equals whatever. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to understand what his heart is for us, that we would be open, that we would be willing, that we would be spirit led. So we know, hey, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? It seems like the same, but is it the same? Might not be the same. Sometimes we are able to be victorious through through prayer and prayer alone. Sometimes other times the Lord wants us to fast about a specific situation. 
Other times, hey, you need a truth from the word of God. Other times, you need fellowship. You need accountability. You need to connect with someone. Sometimes it's counseling. Sometimes it's worship. And the list goes on. But if we try to approach every problem the same way, guess what? We're not going to experience victory every time. The solution for problem A may be very different from the solution of problem B. And the only way we'll know the difference is if we seek the Lord just as David did. And lastly, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 24. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. Um, side note, rabbis um, have taught that... Uh, the angels marching on the tops of mulberry trees is what makes them uh, ruffle. So uh, so that could be what's being referred here. He says, Then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Jazir. So David, he continues to be obedient. He continues to experience what? He continues to experience victory. But we got to notice something here. It doesn't say the Philistines were wiped out for good and they never came back. That's not the truth. He drove them back. They fled. It's a picture of us in our battle with the enemy. It says in James chapter 4, verse 7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That doesn't mean he's gonna, he isn't gonna come back. He'll come back eventually, but it's our responsibility to resist him. It says, resist the devil and he ultimately will flee from you. As long as we're on this earth, there will inevitably be future battles. We can count on it. But if we seek God in each and every battle, he'll equip us. He'll tell us, he'll get across to us what we need to do for that specific battle to maintain victory. He has so many tools that he gives us. But we got to seek him for what tool to use for the right situation. And when we do, and he gives us that direction, and we respond with willingness and obedience, we can continue to walk in those victories, okay? It's going to be battles, up and down, up and down, seasons of victory, seasons of, I feel like I'm getting defeated. But as we wait in the meantime, we look forward to the day, that one day, when the Lord comes back and He declares victory in this world, that there are no more battles, that we're at perfect peace with Him. We don't have to worry about fighting anymore. All we have to worry about is being in sweet fellowship with Jesus and the rest of His saints that are in heaven. There will be a day where we experience ultimate victory. But now... There are battles to be fought. And to know how to fight each battle, we got to seek the Lord daily. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, just how amazing your word is, God, and, and how you uh, speak to us and, and how you uh, foreshadow things to come, Lord. How you give us a picture of David's uh, kingdom and how we know it's a picture of, 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 of your kingdom, Jesus, that you're going to establish, Lord, one day. And God, we just ask that you would give us willing hearts, obedient hearts to seek you for 
direction on a daily basis as, as to how to fight in these battles that we go through. There are different battles and sometimes they're the same, Lord, but we know you have different solutions sometimes, just as we saw in this text. And I pray that you would give us those hearts to walk in obedience, that we would experience as much victory as we can in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.